As a follow-up to our podcast on the BBC United series, we've been speaking to some key characters from that programme, and we were lucky enough to have a live in-depth chat with one of our heroes of that 1990 promotion team. We're delighted he gave up his time, and I got the impression he would have been happy to talk for hours, such was his affinity for the club and love of the game. Bob Booker, or to give him his full name, Uar Bob Booker, came to United as a relative unknown at 32 years of age, deemed surplus to requirements at Brentford, and brought in to fill the gap of the injured Simon Webster. But Booker went on to become a massive part of those two promotion teams and became an absolute cult hero and still is to this day. Booker summed up the qualities many United fans admire and look for in a proper Blades player. Honest, hard-working and he'd never hide. He played 109 games for us in around three seasons and scored 13 goals. So here's our interview with him, which started without me. First question, uh, you, you moved from a small club, or well, fairly small club, Brentford down south to United, a much bigger club up north. So how, how big was the change for you, kind of on and off the pitch? Uh, well, mainly, I, I, played, I played at Bramall only a couple of times in uh, early years for Brentford. So I, you know, from then you're chipped in by the coach, you know, you go into the dressing rooms, you come out, you play the game, you, you don't really take notice of the stadium and you, you come back in and you get on the coach and go back home again. But I, I you know, I definitely remember, as you say, Brentford, no disrespect to what a smaller club in a, in a, in the same division at the time when I came to United. Uh, but obviously just, you know, averaging 6,000 people, very tight ground away fans. And then driving up to Sheffield with my dad to come up and have a chat with, with, with Dave Bassett, you know, driving into that car park and, and seeing that vast stand with, you know, Sheffield United sign. And then walking out on the pitch, me and my dad went for a walk on the pitch and he turned to the right and saw the vast cop, the size of everything. So, you know, the stadium was absolutely, you know, sort of, instead of playing in front of between four and 6,000 people, it went up to, to 20,000 people. Yeah. So that was a massive jump for me as well, you know, in, uh, in that sort of atmosphere. And, and, and with the Northern supporter was, a, I have to say, is a, a lot more vocal than, than the Southern boys. So... Uh, just the whole the whole run of the club, even though it was in that division at the time, everything was all geared up to to hopefully you know get on and, and get up the leagues. So it was yeah. a big change, a big change. I remember a game. I think it was at Mansfield uh, where we drew. I think nil nil, an absolutely filthy night. And I think that's that's kind of been known as the game where sort of uh, you know you'd, you'd come into the team and not many people knew you. And then I think that night, I think you never heard your every tackle and. Uh, United fans kind of talked to you from, from, I think from that game can you remember much about that game? I can remember that game because that's when it did change for me like you say I, I came up to Sheffield relatively unknown uh, uh, to Sheffield people uh, at the back end of my career uh, and really did struggle at the time uh, Harry was putting me in the team but I wasn't fit enough my knee was struggling I wasn't getting up to the pace of the game that Harry was playing so it was a struggle and I came in for some real Real bad criticism, and, and probably rightly so. I wasn't performing as I thought I should do. But uh, you know, Derek French got me fit, and Harry kept playing me. And it all seemed to change, as you said, on that that Mansfield cold, wet, windy night. Uh, and everything just seemed to fall for you, and it, it just felt good after that game. You know, I could hear people's attitude changing to me, uh, rather than the, the negative stuff. It was quite positive. So you know, I grasped that, and that was a real big confidence booster for me from Mansfield onwards, you know, and it went on and on from there. So that was that was a big turning point for me to come through them early stages, which was very difficult. And uh, at that, that time, my, my career fan was expecting something a little bit different for someone that played over 350 games. But Mansfield was the turning point, you're correct. Talking about that group, uh, I mean, there was a, a big thing about the North-South divide. 
uh, not not divide necessarily, but obviously there, there was the sort of Dane, Mitch, and and, and sort of um, sort of Carl. Um, but there were quite a lot of personalities. What was it like to be part of that group? You around like you know, Billy Whitehurst and sort of obviously later Vinnie Jones. It was a real mix. What what's, what was it like to be part of such a group? Well, my, my first day into the dressing room, uh, I think Dave Bassett had already you know laid down the masterclass for me, having a group of Northerners and the Southerners mixing together. I think that was very clever of him. You know, it, the banter was very ruthless, you know, between the Northern lads. Like you say, the Mitch Wards, the Chrissy Wilders, Billy. And then we had John Gannon and Trace, uh, Wally Downs. So, it was, you know, that really did spark the dressing room, off, dressing, dressing room off. So it was a very strong dressing room, a lot of characters, a lot of voices. So you had to be strong and get in there and, and survive that. So I, I knew a couple of players because I'd played against them through, through the years. I knew Stan. I played against Stan quite a bit. I knew the Southern lads because of their Wimbledon days. So it wasn't totally unknown to me, but it, 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 I think that was a very clever part of Dave Bassett's man management where he put them two groups of players together. And, uh, you know, that really did bond us and uh, it brought us really close together. And as I say, you know, if you couldn't take the band in there, then you, you, didn't, you had no right to be in that dressing room. So it was a, it was a masterclass from Harry. In terms of obviously the famous the famous Ooh chant, can can you remember when you when you first heard that and, and so how how did that make you feel to have your own own chant? Do you know I can't I can't really remember where I can't remember what game it would have been. I remember sort of what stage you know, which was a few probably about a few weeks after the Mansfield game or probably a month, a month or so. You just started hearing it and it was growing and growing and growing, especially at the home games. I mean, there was another song out there about uh, we've got Bobby Booker. Yeah, uh, I remember the end. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you know that. Oh, I think you're. Oh, he's coming in now. Smart. I don't know why. So yeah, so that song coming in. So that song, that song, uh, sort of hit the terraces first. But then you know, with the uh, with Canton R being on the scene, and you know, I think the crowd jumped on that. And I'd like to think that I was named Duar before Eric for sure. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, and it just grew and grew from there, really. And as you say, you know, to hear, you know, especially the main cop end, I don't know how many what's on there, 10,000 people. Uh, it, it, it's a buzz. It puts the, back of your, the hairs up on the back of your neck. So it's, it's a really nice feeling to show their appreciation and get you a song. Yeah. yeah. Mark. Hello, Mark. <laughs> Hello, how are you doing? I've had to join on my phone. Would you believe I'm a I'm a I, computer engineer and I couldn't actually get it working on my PC? I don't know what happened. Sorry, I did send the same just, invite. Yeah, yeah it's oh. fine. It's, it's obviously me. Yeah. Bob's on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll let you we'll let you chip in in a minute, Mark. Uh, um, just just Bob, going. Is it right that you shared a house with Derek French? But I read something about you, you left the house because it was haunted. And then you moved in with Chris Wilder and Tony Agarner. Is that true? Well, I had the first. I think I had the first month because uh, it was such a quick, quick thing going up there. I was put into a hotel, the Moat House, just on the top of the A61 there, and got very bored very easily. I was away from home, and obviously I knew Derek French and Jeff Tate. I didn't know Jeff, but I knew Derek French, and he said there was, you know, why didn't I come and share the house with him? So it was myself, Jeff Taylor. Uh, Ian Bryson and his wife and me and Derek French so I shared a room with Frenchie and uh, yeah I'm convinced it was it was in Upperthorpe and uh, it was it was a bit like the house out of Psycho if you remember the film Psycho it was, it was on a hill it was dark you know it was, a, it, it was yeah it was definitely one night me and Derek French we both sat up at the same time screaming and there was an old lady in the room uh, and we just couldn't go back to sleep that night but the, the strange bit about that in the morning is they had all They'd all gone off and I was down at the sink doing a bit of washing up 
and I bet it was a really misty, horrible, rainy morning, very dark, and I bent down to get something out underneath the sink. And as I, as I come up to the window, a bloke was staring through the window at me and tapped on the window, and I, I, I jumped <laughs> back about three foot, absolutely fripped the life out of me. And, I, and he said, I've come to read meter. <laughs> and he'd come to read, he'd come to read the gas. But uh, the night before with the ghost, and then him turning up with his face <laughs> against the window, it completely freaked me out. Yeah. So, you got, you got to yeah, move in with Tony Agarwal. It was a good. It was, yes, he, he played. Unfortunately, he played the same tune uh, every night, <laughs> night and day. You know, God bless him. So uh, I hope he's improved since then. But yeah, so uh, I moved in with Chris. It was Chris's house up at Gleadless, and that was great. You know, they was sort of younger than me, and I'd go home and. My mum would make loads of cakes and I'd take them back up to Sheffield and that's all they was interested in when I, I turned back up on a Monday morning. But that, that was great because, uh, you know, they were good lads and, and Chrissy being a Sheffield lad and, and Tony from, from down south, you know, it was a nice blend and we, we really got on well and I was very, very happy there at Gleadless. I noticed you read in your book you moved uh, later onto Mitchell Road, which is not far. I used to live on Marshall Road in uh, Woodsea. So is, that, is that right? Yeah. You were in the big tree or the abbey? Yeah, I had a little, I had a little stint there. Yeah, I was behind, behind the big tree at Mitchell Road. I, from Gleadless, I went to uh, Morgahay up at Norton with Chrissy Wilder and his mum and dad. They had a big coach house up there and I had my own private annex on the end of it, which was really nice. Uh, and then once I left there, my wife decided to finally move up to Sheffield. We, we, uh, we rented out uh, Martin Pike's house at Mitchell Road behind the big tree. So the abbey and the big tree were a couple of my drinking ha- haunts <laughs> where I used to go and, and sit in there and drink with some of the blades uh when we won a game obviously <laughs> so yeah so happy times in, in yeah. uh down in there mitchell road as well yeah. Uh, yeah not too i'm not too far from there still still at the bottom end of Woodseat. so uh yeah it's not changed much yeah um, we've got everything down there it's good, yeah. good isn't it so yeah i, I enjoyed it at Woodseat. great just going specifically on to the kind of 1990 season and having the cameras round. what was the players reaction when they said they're going to have the cameras in the in the dressing room and how did it feel that that experience well it was a, it was a bit strange at first when harry told us obviously the club was probably getting a, a nice wad of money for it uh, and to follow us at the training ground in the dressing room they was on the coach they was literally everywhere really so it was a bit strange i can imagine it's probably a little bit like love island or big brother you know <laughs> But as the, as the programme goes on or the, the filming goes on and the more they're with you, you tend to forget about them. Uh, and they're just sort of in the background. So you don't really take that much notice once once you get up and running after a couple of series. So, And I think they they felt particularly lucky with following us around on that run and, and getting promotion. It probably couldn't have gone better for them. Uh, and it's still being well documented now. It's just come back on now, isn't it? And uh, to see some of them episodes again really brings it brings it brings it all flooding back. You know, some of the funny from some of the funny programs. It was great. It was good to watch. Good program. Yeah, I was going to say we we've been watching them back and doing some podcasts about them. And I'd say moving on to that day at Leicester. What, what kind of what was that day like? Because you're obviously named captain that day with Stan being injured. Just just talk us a little bit about kind of mm. uh, th- that day. Well, as it came up, Harry uh, Harry sort of give me a tug or pulled me on, I think it was about Wednesday or the Thursday before the Leicester game and, and Stan had already, I think he'd done a bit of a hamstring. Uh, so it wasn't really on the radar for me to be captain. I mean, there were some big characters in the team, you know, you know, you had Mark Morris as centre-half, Chrissy Wilder was a, a, a northern lad, you know, I thought he, you know, he might have got it. Wolf Rostrum was an experienced pro, uh, Colin Hill was experienced pro, so there was plenty of players out there. So or even down to Dean's, you know, it's, I don't really think it matters what position you're in, it's, 
what sort of character you are and, and, and taking the job on. So once he told me that I was going to be captain, it was a very, you know, a bit of a surprise, but one that really did give me a buzz. And I was very, very proud to be standing in that tunnel, uh, going down that tunnel before that game. And I could see that the, the banks of fans across the, or one side already. I hadn't looked to the right because we weren't at the tunnel, but I remember looking round and being at the front of that team and looking round behind me and seeing that group of players. Uh, and they were, they were, you know, it was in their eyes. We were ready to go to battle, like so. To have all them behind me and going down there out into that uh, that cauldron with with you know one side, top and bottom tier, with Blades fans, probably ten, you know, twelve thousand away fans, uh, mainly in the shirt you're wearing now. And apart from fancy dress as well, which was quite quite bizarre, yeah. there was a lot of fancy dress. Mm. So. Uh, yeah, that was a very, very special moment to be, to lead the team down there and one that will stick with me, you know, high up on my football calendar. Yeah. You got a nice, uh, relaxing, calming team talk at half-time, didn't you, from uh, Harry and uh, Jeff Taylor. Uh, really clear instructions. <laughs> oh, that was bizarre, wasn't it? You know, I mean, we got the shot we needed at going 1-0 down uh, and it was just, uh, it was probably the kick up the backside we needed. You know, it was a bit of silence and everyone looked at each other around the, around the pitch from different positions and, we just went into overdrive then, didn't we? And before you know it, we was 4-1 up and coming into half-time, not being arrogant, but knowing, you know, we had a pretty good chance we was going to do this. But uh, there's every chance if we didn't have a major setback that uh, we wouldn't get there. So, uh, yeah, so it was quite, it was quite, in a, quite a strange dressing room at half-time, I have to say. So do you actually know who the zone man is, though? Because we don't. I think it was Colin Hill because I I was always I was always on the edge of the box or probably picking something up. So I think I think it was Colin Hill, but uh, I don't really care really. It could have been any one of us, you know. But uh, I can't remember the board, you know, on the blackboard who it was meant to be. But I'm pretty sure it was would have been Colin Hill because he wasn't the bravest in the air. So the zone man was just stand there and hopefully if the ball comes to him, he hasn't got any other job to do. So yeah, it probably been Colin Hill. That's that's probably about the third or fourth answer we've guessed that. So I think we're still on the wiser, but. Um... <laughs> Going back to the team talks, though, um, we saw quite a few sort of Bassett specials throughout that series and quite a few um, sort of back and forth with you. Did you ever have any major fallings out with him? I think there's one scene where he's telling you you've got the hump because something's worked that you didn't expect was going to work or something. Um, did you have many sort of set twos with him? Or Oh, we had, we had plenty. You know, I mean, he, Harry was very good, you know, at his team talks. He was... He was he wasn't short in coming forward and belittling you or telling you exactly what he thought uh, as a lot of the players did amongst each other so sometimes you know, he didn't really have to do a team talk because we were ripping each other's throats out and sorting out ourselves that's the group we were but yes uh, you know that day on that on the training pitch on that on that particular scene you know, you know I, I like to get around the pitch and get involved and get tackles in and, and win second balls and, and give it to the wide players and he tweaked it a little bit which I wasn't quite happy with because it wasn't I didn't think it suited me, but it actually did work. So I didn't really want to hold my hands up and say, you're, you're right, Harry. I have to have a little chirping about it. But we, we, we could do that with Harry. You know, it's, he didn't mind that. You know, I think, there, I think there's a scene where he coming at half-time and he, he absolutely slaughtered jo- uh, Ian Bryson. But by the end of the programme, I think they're standing at the bar having a couple of Guinnesses with him. So, you know, when it's work, it's work. And, and when, it's, when it's play and, and relax time, he, he could be one of the lads, but you knew he was the gaffer. Very yeah. similar to the manager that they got at the moment in Chrissy Wilder. You know, I think the players respect him. They know that he's one of the lads. He'll have a pint with them. Uh, but when he when he cracks the whip, you know he's the boss, and that's a fantastic attribute to have in, in a manager where you can mix the two. 
and obviously Wilder was there on that day um, and speaking about management and that. Did you did you see it in him? Did you see him becoming a manager? Uh, he was always. I mean, Chris has always been absolutely football crazy from when I first met him, uh, and you know he, he was he, he, he was always watching it. He was always you know even down to Sunday mornings going down and watching the Bradway. You know, I think he still does that now. And I used to go with him and watch the Sunday morning football. He was just. It was just football through and through for, for Chris all the time, you know. So, it, you never know. I never, at that time, I wouldn't have thought he would have probably gone into, into management. But you, you never know when you're just the players and, pay, you know, you finish your, you finish your careers and move on. Uh, it hasn't surprised me how well he's done because he's, he was so passionate about the game. And he, had, he always had a good knowledge about teams and, and their shape and the players and things like that. Whereas me, I just sort of went out there and run around kicking people but he knew exactly what everybody else did and their set plays and things like that he, he was yeah he was very uh, yeah he was, he was on the ball Chrissy so uh, you know he's, he's probably gone into the right the right channels and done very very well and yeah going back to Leicester as well I, I, apparently I don't think you were with the squad that evening is it true that they carried a cardboard cutout of you around instead because you stayed down south well, there was a there was a, a full size cardboard cutout of me in my kit, and I remember seeing it in the crowd at Leicester. Uh, and I remember when a couple of goals went in, and because everybody was running on the pitch in fancy dress, so you had you know you had the likes of Donald Duck in front of you on their knees, bowing at you at your feet, and uh, Mickey Mouse and Pluto and Superman and Batman, they was all there. And I remember someone running on with the cardboard cutout, and it was it was life size. Uh, it, it finally, it finally made its way back to Josephine, where all the lads went, and I, I went back down south because I hadn't been home for a couple of months. Uh, and it was, it was at the entrance at Josephine's, and as the lads got invited in to the front of the queue, Billy Whitehurst came in and punched a big hole in my head uh, on the, on the cardboard cutout. So uh, I would have liked to have got hold of that cardboard cutout. It would have been quite nice to keep that, but uh, yeah, ended up in Josephine's nightclub. So God knows where it is now. Probably in a skip somewhere. Yeah, in a window, keeping the burgles away somewhere. And going back to your time in Sheffield, um, <laughs> you said you sort of embraced Sheffield and people took to you and things like that. Have you sort of got an affinity with, with Sheffield still? And, and what do you put that down to? Is it the club, the, the town, the people? I think, I mean, definitely the people. I mean, the first thing you notice is when you're walking down the street, whether you're, you're playing for Sheffield United or, you know, people are saying good morning to you and hello and... You know, there's that, there's that, there's that connection straight away. But I, I think after after my bad start, I think I, I got the connection because people could see that, you know, what you was doing was trying your hardest, whether it was going right or whether it was going wrong. You, you could see the effort there. So, and I think Sheffield people took to that. I think also I could I could relate to them a little bit as well because I, you know, I left school. I didn't go straight into football. Uh, I I started I went into a furniture factory. So I know what working in what I call the real world is like, you know, I was on a factory floor as an apprentice, you know, working in a factory nine till five, uh, as you do and, and weekends and playing football weekends, just local Saturday football. So I was probably, I would say I'm probably, you know, like most Sheffield United people, you know, they work hard all week as we all do. They've all got their jobs. It comes to the weekend. They, they want to get down to their football and let a bit of steam off go back and play Sunday morning football then go back to work on a Monday. And that's what I used to do before I became a professional footballer. So I think I can relate to that sort of working class man because that's all I am really, was a working class man that worked in a factory and got a lucky break and, and took it from there and grabbed it and got into professional football. So that's, I think where, that's where that connection does come from. You know, I wasn't just, yeah. I didn't come from academy. 
I think you wanted to move on to a few quick fire questions as well, didn't you, Dave? Yeah, go for it. So, best player that you ever played with at United? Uh, played with a few, but Glenn, because he was, he was one in players, and he won't mind me saying this. He wasn't the breaker, he wouldn't want him away at Mansfield on an old windy night, but put him in more lane with 25, 30,000. Uh, and he's, he's got a pass to pick out or a cross to deliver or put a penalty in or, you know, and he's not going to track back for you. So he's what I call the, one of them modern day luxury players. So, but I, I, he had so much ability. I think he was so much, so underrated. Uh, and he just had a wand of a left foot and he was a pleasure to play. You knew that he could pick you out and he could win you a game. Uh, so he was the modern day luxury player for me. So Glenn Hodges was, was fantastic. And in fairness, he had you at the side doing all his work for him. Well, this is it, you know, you've got the likes of us, you know, sort of killing ourselves and running around and, you know, as long, long as you can win it, and, you know, that was my job, you know, win the ball. John Gannon was probably a bit more of a technician than me, so I'd done his work as well. Get the ball to Bryson, get the ball to Wood or Alan Roberts in early days and uh, Mitch Ward and people like that. That's your job done and then we, we always had good wingers and we, we, all knew, we always knew that if you could get 10 crosses within a, within a game, you owed a goal, so that was their target and then if you get them crosses in, you had Dean and the Garner on the end of it and there's only going to be one result if you give them two boys good service. So that's, that was the, that was the, it wasn't rocket science and everybody said about the long ball game, but we all had a job to do and we, we knew what to do. And if we change the plan, then we come unstuck where we very rarely change the plan because everybody just got on with what they had to do and didn't change the plan. And tr- you know, I didn't want to, I couldn't be a John Gannon and start, you know, doing all little flicks and things like that. You know, it was, I was just pure brute force to be fair. I don't know what you think, but I think it's quite unfair that we, we got that long ball tag back then because it wasn't just long ball. It was just playing strengths, wasn't it? Getting the ball down wings, getting it into Dean, into Agana. And yeah, it was exciting stuff and always goals. Yeah, always goals. And it, you say the long ball game, you know, we, we practiced that day in and day out. We just didn't go out there and well it up the pitch. You know, you had to hit it into a certain area. You know, the ball had to stay on the pitch. If it didn't and the fullback got there, we could get up or the forwards could get up and the two wingers and get a corner out of it or get a throw in deep into their half. So it had an end product. It wasn't just sort of, you know, we played a lot of two touch from the back. I remember my first training session, I was, I went short to get the ball off of Stan and, and, and Mark Morris and they was whacking it straight up the front to Brian Dean and I'm thinking, hang on, give me the ball. And they said, no, you ain't going to get it off of them. Now you've got to get up the other end and win the second ball from Dean and the Garner. <laughs> of course, the centre-half now had it back down the other end of the pitch. So I was, going, I was going back and forward, like up and down like a stripper's knickers. So, uh, <laughs> You know, it was it was it was a tough system. It was a tough system to get into. So, uh, and I'd come from a Steve Perman team that was playing what we call tippy tappy football and passing it around and having loads of touches. Well, that went straight out the window when when I joined United. So yeah, it was it was a it was a good product, and uh, we all knew our jobs and we, we got the jobs done. And and Harry put us into a shape and got us all doing certain jobs. And that's all you had to do week in and week out. We practiced it day in and day out until we just did it, you know, religiously. Uh, and who do you think is the most underrated player you ever played with at United? Brian Dean. <clears throat> Brian Dean. Best £40,000 from Doncaster that club has ever, ever spent. Uh, absolutely a bargain, you know, for a big man. Uh, you know, he had two good feet. Uh, big feet as well. I think he was size 12. Uh, you know, he, he could control the ball. He could hold it up. He had pace. He had good stride. He was brilliant in the air. He could get attack in. He could score long shots. You know, he, he had a lot for me, Dino. And he, he was such a classic lad for a big lad as well. But when he got on the pitch, he wasn't what you call the most aggressive. He wasn't a Billy Whitehurst, 
he could still put himself around, but he had all he had all the tools for a class centre forward. And you know, he finally got into the England team, and you know, went on to Benfica, and you know, he played at some good top football clubs. So uh, very under very underrated, great great pro, great pro. Yeah, it's a good call that actually, because we obviously it's a legend to us a lot, but um, yeah, he probably didn't get that sort of very top level recognition he probably deserved because he was a complete player, I think. Yeah. Oh, it was the complete centre forward. I mean, if you if he was in the modern game now, you know, you look at uh, I don't know who we're talking about at the moment. You know, Zahar and people like that. You know, yeah, they they're technically very good and they score a lot of goals. I mean, I think in the modern, if he was still young enough to play now, Brian Dean, he would he would be the top of your list for a centre forward. And touching on Billy Whitehurst there, who's the hardest player? Well, you say, I mean, you just mentioned Big Billy. He, you know, again, that was another masterstroke by Harry, bringing him in late on the season. What a great sign, you know, with 10 minutes to go or 15 minutes to go and you're nil-nil or you're one-nil up and you want to, you want someone to go on and cause complete carnage against the against the other team. Billy was your man, you know. I think he, he nearly he nearly made that history that, that the game before at Blackburn when the ball got stood up to the far post. I don't know if he was there, and you you put your you put your life on it that uh, Billy would take the ball and the goalkeeper and finish it off, and somehow it just didn't go in. And then we went on to the Leicester game. So you know, Billy Whitehurst, he, he was a tough, tough character. You know, uh, on and off the park, you, you didn't you didn't mess with Big Billy. You know. Uh, it's almost one then when he walks in the room, you walk, you walk the other way. <laughs> he goes on the back end or something. So uh, he, he was, he was tough. And uh, and to be fair, when Vinny came, you know, Vinny, you know, he's got this hard man tag. He's, he's a big softy under it all, under it all. But he, he was a, he was a physical player, and I we had some good scraps of him against Leeds United. And uh, yeah, you know, Vinny was not only was he strong uh, physically, he was strong mentally. You know, he could upset you just with his verbal and the mental side of things. Nothing phased him, you know, no matter who he was playing against, whether it was Graham Souness or Steve McMahon, you know, all them names that he's overcome over the years. He, yeah, so he was a, he's a, a good, soft lad and very, you know, not really that sure about himself off the pick, you know, Park, you know, how, how did I play, Bob? How am I doing? You know, he wouldn't think that with any Jones, but once he crossed that white line, he was a, he was a different animal. I mean, he literally took that, he, he literally took that, the game at Man City, and Harry said before the game, I want you to get into Peter Reid as soon as you can, you know, upset Peter Reid, the way at Man City. Yeah. And I think he lasted 30 seconds and just went straight in with a two-footer. I think it was about seven silly, seconds. He had that silly headband on. And he, yeah, about seven seconds. And he, you know, and he said to Harry at half-time, you told me to get into the yeah, but not in seven seconds, you know. Settled into the game, straight from the kick-off, he went and locked himself with a two-footer to Peter Reid without the ten men. Well done, Vinny. Yeah, very good. Very good. Do you have a favourite shirt or kit that you wore with that United squad, or is it just something you put on and play in? Well, it's strange. I've just done a, I've just done a thing on Dean on uh, Phoenix Sport and Media this week. Uh, the story of the shirt. I chose the shirt of the, the game against Liverpool when we was back in the First Division, uh, which I've still got, uh, and I've, I've given it to a good friend of mine for his son's birthday. Got it framed up. I won't go into. The shirt, but you could watch it. Yeah, that's yeah. yeah. So that that that's what I use for the front of the book. And I was just having a little smile at him and thinking, yeah, your boy's done good at, at 31, 32. He's yeah. he's playing in that first game against Liverpool. Uh, you know, and I, I managed to keep that one. And obviously the yellow one, the Leicester away, which was uh, probably the most. I think it went down as the most popular shirt for Umbro at that season. But we had to get rid of it because it was clashing with the stewards. Uh, <laughs> Fantastic shirt, and I actually gave that shirt after the Leicester game. You might might have met Rooker at the mm. club. You probably didn't know Mick Rooker. Mm. 
he works in commercial and uh, he, he really looked after me when I came to Sheffield. So I promised him the shirt if we got promotion. Are you still in touch with any of the 1990 squad? Well, I speak to Chrissy Wilde, you know, on occasions, and I obviously text him before game. Been up to quite a few games uh, this season, uh, and still been out with with Chris and his family, and for a drink after the games, and always meet him in his office afterwards, and we we, we talk about the old times. So I'm in good contact with Chrissy Wilder, Brian Dean. I speak to quite a bit, uh, and when I come up to get invited up to games to do sort of a bit of hospitality work, but you know, I see Peter Duffield and Mitch Ward and Carl Bradshaw who still work for the club. Yeah, so I'm, I'm you know, in contact with a few of them now and again. Spoke to Mark Morris a few times, uh, and Ian Bryson on Twitter. So, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a fair few that we, we still keep in contact with each other and, you know, we reminisce on that fantastic day. So, uh, it's nice to catch up with them. Good. And uh, what are you up to these days? I still work down at Brighton now on uh, in hospitality. So, after leaving there, after being assistant manager for 11 years, uh, I, I got into... I've become a driving instructor, which is a form of coaching. So it's an extension of my coaching career, <laughs> albeit on a one-to-one basis. So so I, I mix that in with the work down at Brighton on the media side and I do hospitality and I do sort of the tour of the dressing room before the games for the sponsors. So it's a nice balance that I, I get to uh, I get to see all the games, but I'm lucky enough to come home and have a bit of a social life with my wife now because when you're in, in management or coaching, it's 24-7. So uh, I think it's a nice, I think it's a nice balance in, in my life now. And we, you know, we've we've sort of got a place abroad, so we spend quite a bit of time out of the country, which is nice. So it's a nice relaxing time. And so I think life's good. It's a nice balance. And football has changed so much that uh, I'm not sure I'd sort of wanna wanna be in it at the moment anyway. So it's a nice balance just doing that work and and with my driving uh, and spending time, uh, you know, our place abroad. So it's uh, and watching United and, and Brighton play and. Brentford and looking out for their results so yeah so it, it, life's good. We're nearly done I really appreciate your time but uh, just finally have you got a message for any any United fans hopefully we're going to put all these together with some of the uh, players and staff from that 1990 just a final message for any of the Blades fans? Well Blades fans I mean you know it, like I say it, it was a rocky road but they you know you, you all stuck with me uh, which I'll always appreciate uh, you, you followed me through and through. You made me feel very proud to wear the shirt. Uh, you know, I used to love playing in front of that cop and, and feeling the buzz and the noise from, from the stadium. Uh, and, I, you know, that will always stick with me in your football career. You know, it, it was a short career at Sheffield United, but so a lot of success came very, very late in my career. And to have that bond with you supporters was, was priceless. Uh, and, you know, I was still in contact with a lot of them on Twitter and, when I go up there and people still ask me for my autograph, which is like 20 odd years later, which is quite bizarre, really, still to get recognised. And, yeah. you know, the club sort of put in, putting a name to my box and I've got a brick in the wall outside the dressing room. And, you know, little things like that don't come along very often, especially in the short amount of time that I was there. So, you know, I, I, I sort of cling on to that and I'm very proud of that. And it's always great to, to feel that supporters were up behind me uh, in the end. And, all I'd say to them now is, you know, take what's take what's coming this season. Hopefully, it gets finished. But you're in a, you know, we're in a great position with what the manager's done at the moment. So, you know, stick behind him. Uh, once a blade, always a blade. And don't forget who our Bob Bukar lives on. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Really appreciate you giving your time. Massively up, appreciate it. it. Thank you. You'll still thanks, always be a hero to us. As well. Yeah, serious. Mark, you still there, yep. Mark? Yeah, I am.
get yourself some lessons on computers, son. Modern technology. I will do. You'll never live this down. I won't. Cheers, Bob. See you later. Thank you. Obviously, chatting to Booker. I mean, I'm going to say this about all the people we 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 we've met with, or not met with, but talked to. Just a really fantastic guy, really warm. You know, affinity for football, for Sheffield United. Uh, and I genuinely got the impression he, he could have chatted for us. We felt a bit bad, actually, kind of uh, wrapping it up. But um, he just clearly loved his time with United. Well, it's you and your tight not paying for Zoom, 40 minutes and off. Um, I, I got the impression, too. In fact, all of them we spoke to, I felt we, we cut them off rather than they, you know, they having to go. And that's that just tells you everything about that. Probably that squad and them as people, that they were more than happy to give up the time for us. And, yeah, Bob, Bob was brilliant. Um, Obviously, I quite rightfully got a bit of stick from him, and uh, but that was just it. It was just like having a bit of a conversation with a mate, and um, yeah, I really enjoyed it. I made an error on the pod, actually. I said we drew nil-nil at Mansfield. We actually won one-nil. Uh, I think I was a bit stressed because you'd not joined us for the... Uh, oh, my <laughs> fault. My fault for you getting stats wrong. Okay. You poor IT. Yeah. He was He was genuinely a, a massive hero, wasn't he, at the time? Yeah. There was people at my school who were named after him because uh, he was such a, such a good player at the time. No, I had a mate called David Booker, and we always called him Bob. Uh, and he just made a massive impact on the whole fan base for United. Brilliant, brilliant effort. Everything that Gannon wasn't, really. And that's probably why they made him such a good partnership. Well, Booker said it, didn't he? He said he used to get the ball, give it to Gannon, Hodges, you know, the, the talented players, and let them do the, do the, you know, do, do, do the skillful work while he did the graph. He definitely wanted to be uh, labelled as the first UR ahead of Cantona, which he was, wasn't he? he but Paul, I think Paul McGrath might have been first, actually. I didn't, I didn't want to tell him that in the interview. <laughs> Chicken. <laughs> I must say, I'm surprised he only scored 13 goals. Yeah, I am. Yeah. I'd have said he scored 13 in that 1990 season. He seemed. Yeah. It... Didn't he score eight in that season, David? I think that, yeah, I think it was eight. Near post flick ons. He loved, didn't he? Them little flick ons. Yeah. Arriving, arriving late in the box. Yeah. Yeah, no, the 13 goals surprised me. I thought no. he had a better ratio than that. Yeah, well, he, he did. He contributed quite a lot, didn't he? I remember yeah, he, he scored two against goal. Southampton in that yeah. second season in top division. Oh, and and yeah, yeah, that when we stayed up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He scored, the thing is, he scored some vital goals. Yeah. I remember him scoring a late equaliser in the game where you were mascot at Hillsborough, John. It's one of yes. my first favourites. Yeah, yeah. Just. He's just such a hero, Booker. What a player. What a guy. What a guy. Yeah. And, you, and you've also got to give him credit. He joined the club at 32 and he stayed, what, three years? So he was still playing top flight at 35, 34, 35. So he's got to be in very good shape. And Yeah, he just showed how hard he worked. I mean, the ages things. I think you mentioned this the other day when we were talking, Andy, that the ages of people in that team just sort of it's not something in the same way as I didn't really recognize or understand why the boo boys were getting the stick they were because to me you're a football fan you go and you, you support because I didn't really understand it I was 10 11 12 whatever but in the same way as that with with ages I like I didn't appreciate that Booker in reality is coming to the end of his career in the same way as I didn't realize Dean was so young as he was when he came like 20 years old and pretty much led the line on his old own so Booker was interesting because Brentford released him at 32 and then two and a half, three years later, they actually paid a fee to bring him back. Yeah. Lovely stat. So you've got your stats now, but you're messing them up on actual interviews. 
So Booker was playing in the top flight for us at 35, wasn't he? Which is very rare back then. Yeah, yeah 34. 35, You'd have goalkeepers yeah. playing at that age, but not outfield players at top. Brilliant. Yeah, full, full credit to him for that. You've got to be really fit and mentally strong. Yeah, definitely. But there's all those stories about him, isn't there, as well, when he used to go to kids' parties and stuff. And he was just kind of a man of the people, weren't he, at that, that time? Not aware of these stories. <laughs> I, I must say, I've, I'll dig you out of that hole, Dave. I've been going to kids' <laughs> parties. Uh, I was surprised when you asked him the question, uh, most um, underrated player, and he said Deansy. Yeah. With obviously the career Brian went on to have, um, obviously at that time. I was really surprised at that. Yeah, I, I, I sort of saw where it came, coming from, because I think what he was saying is that, you know, it's, it, it was a top, top, complete player, but did he really get to the very top? How many were really better than him at that time, but were probably preferred in front of him, like for England and for big money signings? I think, so it's I think Dean was fantastic and amazing for us. I think he could have done even better. I think he picked the wrong move to Leeds. I think, you know, probably wrong points of his career. He didn't quite, you know, maybe push, maybe not quite aggressive enough. Amazing player, but should have played a lot more for England than, than he did. Uh, to be fair, though, Deansy was about at the same time of some amazing Amazing centre forwards, weren't it? Yeah, exactly. Uh, Shearer, right, Ferdinand, you could go on, couldn't you? So you, you, you say that though, but you look at as I think somebody mentioned not playing enough for England. Look at the Euro '92 squad. Alan Smith made it, who was yeah. coming towards the end, and Dean scored many a goal in the top flight before that. Steve Ball got picked for Italia '90. Yeah, playing for Wolves. In, I think he was in the th- was he in the third division or second yeah, same, division. Same as us, yeah. For me, you were better than Les Ferdinand anyway. But even that aside, it was certainly you said you're not telling me he's not better than Bull or Alan Smith when he's in his mid thirties. Come on. I, I think if he'd have made a different move, he went to Leeds and it didn't quite suit him going back to his low club. If he'd have gone to, I don't know, a Manchester United or a Newcastle or you know, a, a Chelsea, I, I, I think he might have done better. But he, he followed his heart, didn't he, with the move? It's yeah. It, listen, we'd do it if we had the chance to play for another club. Yeah. Yeah, we'd do it. But yeah, for me, I, I can see why Booker said underrated, definitely, because it, even to me now, I look at the goals he scored in some of those seasons and think, you know, the general public, football fans, wouldn't have, still wouldn't see that skill that we saw as, as United fans. Glenn Hodges. Yeah. yeah. He didn't play 90, did he? So do we not talk about him? Well, I know you're desperate to talk about him since he's your, you're probably your favourite ever United player or up there, second, certainly. Second. Yeah, but for him to say Hodges is just it just reiterates what I've been saying for the last thirty years. <laughs> what a player! What a player Hodges was. Never disagreed with it. Yeah, lazy as anything, but uh, just it's just magic. Yeah, the the wand of a left foot about Hodges gets mentioned a lot, doesn't it? Yeah. Mm. I bet on the training ground, but he, he did some amazing stuff as well that we didn't see. So they they, they pay attention to that, don't they? Anyway, thanks again to Bob for taking the time to speak to us. We really enjoyed listening to hear what he had to say about United. He's a top bloke and hopefully you enjoyed it too. Uh, if you did, there's a few more interviews coming up with the staff and players from 1990. Uh, we'll be putting those out in the next week or two. So keep an eye out for them. Big thanks to Bobby Booker for coming on. Childhood hero, United hero. Uh, and great to hear him doing an interview with us. Yeah, thanks, Bob. Thanks for getting in touch. Cheers, Bob.